If you have an elevator pitch, going up. Do you ever test it before you try it on someone? There are pitch events going on pretty much every day, and when an entrepreneur exits that event, they'll have immediate feedback from a lot of different people. It could be your style that they react to. It could be the words you use not being clear. A lot of people tend to put in jargon that may be really good with people in your industry, but as soon as you go outside of that industry, people have no idea what you're talking about. How do you bridge the cultural gap in the workplace? For example, a lot of my clients from Asia are very uncomfortable talking about themselves. They feel that it's boastful and they really don't want to brag about themselves. But then if you want to have a successful job interview, you do need to be able to talk about your accomplishments and not be reserved about that. How good a listener are you? Listening versus talking is a really interesting dynamic. A lot of people think that talking is the most important thing. I personally feel that listening is more important than talking. Am I listening to what this person is saying or am I waiting to speak? This is the language of business. A weekly podcast designed to inform and inspire entrepreneurs and anyone thinking about a startup. Learn about strategies that work and strategies that don't work. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Greg Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. Our episode today is about business communication. Here's Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. While everybody knows the importance of receiving presentation feedback, you only want to hear the positives, right? Fine. You'll take the negatives, but only if it's from someone you know. Bill Kenny disagrees. His company is Test My Pitch, and they provide you, the entrepreneur, with an opportunity to get feedback on your presentation. Bill, welcome to the Language of Business. Thank you, Craig. It's great to be here. How can an entrepreneur get feedback from people that don't even know their backstory, let alone the history of their idea? What we find, actually, the more important variables are not necessarily who the person is, but who they're going to communicate with and what the purpose of the communication is. So that kind of context really helps the reviewer steer the individual in a much more effective way. How do you preserve confidentiality? In our public platform, we don't, but we do sell a private version of our platform that allows organizations to manage that intellectual property in a way that doesn't put it in the public domain. In the public version of your software, is the feedback always anonymous? Individuals are identified when they give it, and, and we feel that's important. You tend to lose credibility if you don't identify who's giving the, the feedback. But if you don't even know who's giving you the feedback, how can you vouch for that person's credibility? It almost doesn't matter. Our platform allows pitching just to experts. It allows pitching to the crowd or crowdsource feedback. You know, I think you need to have feedback from a lot, lot of different people. It could be your style that they react to. It could be the words you use not being clear. The challenge is if you're just getting feedback from people with a certain perspective, you may not be communicating away. A lot of people tend to put in jargon that may be really good with people in your industry that you'd want to get feedback from. But as soon as you go outside of that industry, people have no idea what you're talking about. We really find it is important to have that industry type feedback, but also getting more well-rounded feedback is important as well. Do entrepreneurs ever take offense? We've certainly seen in live feedback events where people do take offense. They get defensive and so on. But I think that's really a learning opportunity in that you don't have to take the advice but you certainly have to encourage it because the minute you start being defensive, you get a lot less feedback. And so it's really about being open to 
to those suggestions. Part of what we do is actually when you get feedback, you have the opportunity to identify how effective that feedback was for you. So every person that gets feedback now is scored and we're able to elevate people to a higher level, an expert level, if they get enough good scores. And so the idea that it's better curated feedback is really where we're going. And we're actually working towards the place where we can match people much better with their goals, so industries and so on. The expert level being the person presenting or the people giving the feedback? I was talking specifically about the person giving the feedback. So the idea that if you've given feedback to 10 or 20 people and a vast majority of the time people have said that that's been helpful feedback, you are ranked higher as a reviewer than someone who has either done less or gotten less of those positive reviews. Bill, with all of the elements of business communication available to you, why have you focused on giving presentation feedback? Ultimately, for us, it's where we see uh, making the largest impact. When a company is looking to commercialize a product, really getting that immediate feedback to let them know if the idea is good is really important. And I think that often we see the barrier to that feedback is really that clear articulation of what they're looking to do. And so we really want to help people get by that hump and be able to commercialize much quicker. There are pitch events going on pretty much every day, and the idea that when an entrepreneur exits that event, they'll have immediate feedback that's actionable so that they continue to evolve their ideas much quicker is really our goal. You mentioned on LinkedIn that you were an ROI expert. What is the ROI of Test My Pitch, and how does it make money? We sell private versions, white label versions of our site to universities, business accelerators, and entrepreneurship ecosystems. And what's a white label version? A white label version would really just be a private version that would allow a university accelerator and so on to have a private community online so that their entrepreneurs could work directly with their mentors in complete anonymity. And what's the revenue model then? It's really a private annual license, sort of an enterprise level license to those types of organizations. With all of the pitches that you've seen and all of the feedback that you have observed that has been given, Mm -hmm. what do you think are some good tricks of the trade for improving business communication? By far, the most important is knowing who your audience is and understanding that it really doesn't matter what you say, it's what the audience hears and aligning your communication in a way that makes it most likely for them to hear your intent. Even if it's what you don't want to hear? The idea that you have, and this is always the funny thing about feedback is, Not knowing what people think doesn't mean they don't think it. And so the more you understand about their impressions, the more you can tailor your message to meet their need. Sort of that wonderful sweater that you get over the holidays that the person giving it thinks (laughs) it's wonderful, but you wouldn't be caught dead wearing it out of the house, let alone to your office. Yes, honey, you look great in that dress. (laughs) Yeah, no, you want to know. It's really critically important. Ultimately, I think that's really where you know who your friends are when people feel comfortable in sharing what they really think with you. If an entrepreneur receives negative feedback and it's in the public domain, is there a way for them to remove it as they are progressing with the improvement of their pitch? Sure, they could delete the pitch from the system. That's really an archive of progress. And some of what we want to help not just the entrepreneur, but the organizations, the accelerators and the universities do, is to be able to measure impact. Showing that trajectory of an individual or a team or a business idea is really important to measuring impact to know where the effect comes from. What mentors are causing that change is really important as well. So we hope that there's less deleting going on than more, I suppose. Thanks, Bill. Thank you, Greg. Bill Kenny, CEO and founder of Test My Pitch. Coming up, how good a listener are you? 
But first, how to bridge the cultural gap in the workplace as the language of business continues. Back to Greg Stoller. What's an idiom? Medically speaking, of course. How about rules by the sound? Confused? Don't be. Those are only the book titles. Let's switch to Japanese. Ego Taiwa Jutsu? Does that sound better? That's effective English communication. We're here in Brookline, Massachusetts, right outside of Boston, with Marjorie Whitaker. She's the owner and principal of the Whitaker Group that trains non-U.S. executives to work effectively in the United States from a communication standpoint, from a cultural standpoint as well. Marjorie, welcome. Nice to be here, Greg. It's nice to have you here. How do your services differ from a very specialized ESL or English as a second language curriculum? Well, the ESL programs are generally theoretical in nature and they deal with a lot of the foundations of the language, so reading and writing and listening and speaking, but it's more focused on vocabulary and grammar and spelling. And what we do is we take all those skills and help clients apply them to practical communication situations so they can succeed at their workplace. Do you only train on communication or also culture as well? Culture is a big piece of what we do as well. And how do you train culture? Well, a lot of times people from other countries aren't familiar with things like small talk or networking or even having conversations on the phone. So a lot of their skills they need to really apply in different kinds of communication contexts. And that's where culture comes in. What happens if the requirements of somebody's workplace dictate a certain communication style that is not the same as someone's culture where they grow up? Well, we often have to go over that and just have discussions and have them be more aware of what's expected here and what's acceptable and what they're used to. For example, a lot of my clients from Asia are very uncomfortable talking about themselves. They feel that it's boastful and they really don't want to brag about themselves. But then if you want to have a successful job interview, you do need to be able to talk about your accomplishments and not be reserved about that. Now, do you specialize in specific nationalities? I work with people from all over the world and all different professions. And how do you find them? Or better yet, how do they find you? A lot of it is word of mouth. They can find us on the Whitaker Group website. And because we're in an area where there's so many medical centers and universities, there's a lot of opportunity to meet with the international community. Do you ever work with entire universities or entire companies? I work with companies here that are global companies and the university students tend to come to me. My guest is Marjorie Whitaker. She's the owner and principal of the Whitaker Group, a very interesting company that trains people from outside of the United States to do well in their workplaces here, specifically in English. English is not something that you can necessarily teach out of a book, yet your books are so very detailed, they're really impressive. How do you bridge the gap between grammatically correct English and actually spoken English in the workplace? Well, basically our books are just one component of what we do, so rules by the sound and medically speaking rules and rules, they are very detailed to work within our sessions and then for clients to work on independently, but the rules really generalize to everyday conversation. So if we've taught the rule for compound nouns, let's say, you can look at a Trader Joe's circular and say, oh, I need to buy ice cream as opposed to ice cream. So it's really something that they can take and learn the rules and then apply them to their everyday life. Do people get frustrated with the infamous Boston accent? No, <laughs> I think they are amused by it more than anything else. Talk to us about small talk. How you're able to train somebody to not just grammatically get something across, but actually blend into the workplace seamlessly. Well, as far as small talk, I usually tell people to be prepared. So if they're going to go to a situation where they will be interacting with people whom they don't know, have one or two topics ahead of time. And oftentimes that's a little bit of a discussion before the meeting, just to talk about what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. Tell them to be interested, to be the first one to shake someone's hand and say hello. And oftentimes they'll meet someone who would be more than happy to talk about 
themselves and take some of the pressure off of them. Have you ever had a client who you've had to dramatically change their communication style from the beginning of your work with them to the end? It's a process, and so everyone's different. We assess everyone when they come in to see what their strengths and challenges are, and then we tailor make a program to help them achieve their goals. And do most people make that dramatic change? I see a dramatic change, yes. And how long does that usually take? Usually two or three months. If they come for classes, let's say once a week, and then do their independent assignment, which might be working on our online platform or um, practicing their presentations and things that are work-related, after a few months' time, you can really see some big changes in confidence in particular. Have you ever gone the opposite way? Have you ever trained U.S. executives who are looking to work overseas? Not so much, but there, there's definitely, with globalization, there are more and more um, requests for that kind of thing as well. How do you get people over the hump that English doesn't really follow rules? Well, we do teach them the rules that we've been able to identify, and then I just say there are lots of exceptions, and not to take themselves so seriously, and don't be afraid to make mistakes, and it's really about getting your point across. It's the most important thing and not being perfect. What would you say has been your biggest success in terms of improving business communication? making people feel confident that they can walk into a meeting or into a presentation and feel like they're the expert and know that people are listening to them and not judging them and not confused about what they're saying. And that's really a big thing for them. Excellent. Thank you, Marjorie. Thank you very much. Marjorie Whitaker, owner and principal at The Whitaker Group here in Brookline, Massachusetts. Still to come, are you listening to what someone's saying or waiting for your chance to speak? Next on The Language of Business. Our sponsor is Art Lifting. If you have a small business, or even if you run a Fortune 500 company, you can uplift the look of your office with Art Lifting. Art Lifting has over 1,300 artworks in a variety of styles and prices. You can buy them or rent them and switch them up on a rotation every month or so. But wait, there's more. All of the Art Lifting art is by artists who are homeless or dealing with disabilities. So you not only brighten and uplift your office, you're helping local communities across the USA. To learn more and view the collection, go to artlifting.com. Once again, here's Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. Think it's possible to be known on six continents for doing the exact same thing? How about if those skills transfer effectively across different cultures? But first, she spent 30 years in the same industry. She obviously does her job well, but so much of her success is because she effectively recruits, hires, and trains good people to surround her. Melanie Kelzadish-Barr, welcome the language of business. Thank you, Greg. It's great to be here. In this crazy world of company politics being rift, reduction in force, and industry consolidation, how have you survived for 30 years doing the exact same thing? I think it's working smart, always hiring the best people you possibly can, and really leveraging the good thinking that everybody brings to the table and the diversity of thought to try some different things. If they work out, fabulous. And if they don't, you learn from them and you move on. But it sounds so cliche to say hire the best people. What does that really mean? There are people who are afraid to hire people who are smarter than they are. They go for the B team. You really need to go for the A team. You need to look for people who think creatively, who think differently, who bring a different skill set to the table. I like people who are really smart but aren't cocky. They're not arrogant about their intelligence. And you need to have people who are comfortable in their own skin. Let's talk about the nuts and bolts of business communication, the focus of this segment. Email or in-person communications? 
Oh, it depends on the circumstances. You know, when you think about the millennial generation, you can't go on a college campus without noticing what kind of an impact this has had. You walk on campus between classes and everybody's head down on their smartphone. There are times where that's great and there are times where you really need to think about doing it in person. Email communications are perfect if you want to reach a lot of people, if you want to get your message out quickly. If you want to capture the essence of something and make sure it lives forever, because as we know, electronic communications never die. But there are times when in-person communications are better. Nuance is lost in email. You sometimes can send an email and people don't know if you're joking or if you're serious and they can interpret it the wrong way. There are times when you have bad news to deliver. I always like to do that face-to-face -face because you can see how the person receiving that information is processing it. And there are just sensitive topics that I think you don't cover in an email. Client problems, spin, or honesty? Honesty all the time, but certainly you need to put a positive face on the information that you're providing your clients. You know, and I know, we can have one set of numbers, we can give them to three different people, and those three people will interpret those numbers very differently. So that means you can take a set of facts and you can put them in a positive perspective for clients, and I think that's what's really important. You always want to make sure you're being transparent, you're being honest, but you also want to make your communications as optimistic as you can. Do you always have to be consistent with your communication? Yes, you do. Consistency is really important. When you're dealing with businesses, obviously you're dealing with goals and objectives, and if they form the framework around which you communicate, that's a built-in sort of set of parameters that you can work with. But I also think in order to ensure consistency and understanding of communications, I like to think of it from three angles. You need to know your audience, you need to watch your audience, and you need to talk simply. Knowing your audience means how does this person like to hear information? Do they like it in written form? Do they like it verbally? Do they a lot of data, a little bit of data, charts, no charts? Are they visual uh, responders? Watching your audience means always being aware of their body language. Are they with you as you're communicating to them or not? Do they give you the furrowed brow look, which means they've got a little skepticism. So you've always got to be alert to that and you've got to be willing to change course as appropriate. And simple talk is just that. I've been around so many people who get caught up in their words and when they finish a sentence, I kind of scratch my head and go, what, what, did, did, they what did they say? <laughs> I gear it towards simple and straightforward and words that can't be equivocated. Let's talk millennials. Some people love their free spirit. Other people describe them, frankly, as being royal pains in the neck. Where do you come out in that debate? Oh boy, with two daughters who both fall into that bucket, I would agree with both of those statements. <laughs> Very diplomatic <laughs> of you. And there's a time for both. I think they can really challenge you to think differently, which is wonderful. They just have an understanding of changes in our technology and how to use those in ways that are so different from how we people who've been involved in business for a long period of time, we all learn from each other. They're learning from us and we're learning from them. And that's the great thing, sort of this whole concept of reverse mentoring. If they have a position or an opinion different than yours in a public forum, do you want them to express it? I actually am happy if people express a different opinion in a public forum but not all people are like me. So they have to be really cautious about that and know who their audience is. And obviously it depends on what the forum is. If it's a very large forum, I would say it's probably less appropriate. Depending upon who's in the audience, it may be less appropriate. Certainly if I've stated something that's factually incorrect, 
absolutely I want somebody to jump in and correct misinformation. You want to make sure that you're not viewed as having somebody at the table who's divisive, but I think you can do that. You can offer contrary opinion. It's all in how you do it. What's the fine line between listening versus talking? Listening versus talking is a really interesting dynamic. A lot of people think that talking is the most important thing. I personally feel that listening is more important than talking. My rule of thumb is unless I have something of value add to offer or unless I have something that hasn't been said before, I typically keep my mouth shut. I also think if it's an environment where I'm new and I'm learning, I will observe and listen before I jump in and start to talk. One thing that I heard a long time ago, which is really important when you're having a conversation with somebody, you always have to say to yourself, am I listening to what this person is saying or am I waiting to speak? Because if you're waiting to speak, you're thinking about how you're going to frame your response and you're not focused on what that person is saying, which means that communication is going to be much less effective. Great stuff. Thank you very much. Thank you. Melanie Kelzetti Spar, 30 years successfully working in the investment management industry. On today's episode, we talked about improving business communication, how to get it right, how to get it better, and how to avoid many faux pas along the way. Thanks, Greg. And that's our episode this week. You can find links to all the people and companies we've interviewed on the show notes. We now have downloads in 40 countries. Welcome to Paraguay, or in Spanish, Paraguay. And in 32 states, welcome to Kentucky, the home of bourbon. We appreciate the support. If you subscribe and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, it'll be a huge help. Thank you. Our director is Mark Mandel. Social media by Jennifer Powell of ExcellentWriters.com. Consulting producer is Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Audio editing and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of SomethingYouShouldKnow.net. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Thanks for listening to The Language of Business. 